the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hello, I'm Tiffany McTaggart. And I'm George Gawley. Welcome along to the Animal Health and Welfare series of podcasts, which is brought to you by the Farm Advisory Service. During 2021, we'll be bringing you eight podcasts. We want to provide you an insight into latest strategies which are being both developed and implemented with the ultimate aim of improving the welfare of our livestock. Over the course of the next year, we'll be disseminating topics such as precision livestock farming, genetics, behaviour, disease and resistance and how these challenges can be overcome to allow us to meet the challenges of the future. Today we're speaking to Dr Joanne Connington and Professor Cathy Dwyer on sheep genetics, behaviours and painful procedures. Joe is head of the Department of Agriculture, Horticulture and Engineering Sciences at SRUC. Joe's work focuses around genetics and how these impact health and survival and susceptibility of diseases. Cathy is animal welfare team leader at SRUC, carrying out work from offspring survival and mother-offspring interactions to impact on sheep welfare of management practices in farming systems to painful procedures in sheep. Welcome, Joe. Could you tell us about your work with disease resistance in sheep foot rot and mastitis? Yes, thanks very much. Um, so the work that I do um, is in collaboration with industry. So together with um, breeding companies, um, we work very closely with them to look at how you can build um, uh, aspects of disease resistance into structured breeding programs. And the diseases that we focused on are those that are of economic importance. So that tends to be endemic diseases like foot rot, mastitis, and uh, internal parasites. And what we've done is, um, for foot rot and mastitis anyway, it's been quite a, we've been doing this for quite a while, but most recently, with the um, uh, introduction of genomic selection in livestock species, it's it's been kind of resurrected, if you like. And the way we've done it is by uh, working with a uh, a company who has screened the with Texel Sheep uh, Society, should I say? Um, they've screened a huge number of animals uh, on a, a in a structured way, and these animals from their pedigree flocks have information um, that is required for the breeding program. So they know the sire and the dam, they know whether they come from a litter of one, two, three, they know whether they're male and female, all the information that you need to include in a breeding program. And what we did was go to these farms and repeatedly screen um, the, the hooves using a scoring system, a five point scoring system, and at the same time, we also turned them upside down and took uh, milk from the udders of the ewes. So we're not only looking at the feet, but we're also looking at uh, clinical and also subclinical mastitis. So we're kind of killing two birds with one stone. For some sheep breeds, uh, mastitis is a bit of an issue. And um, what we what we did was find that um, 
when we when we combined the information that we'd gleaned, so we had about I don't know ten and a half, fourteen thousand records um, to play with, so a decent data set, and we're able to see um, that there is actually a genetic basis to um, both mastitis and foot rot. And um, that means um, that out of all the reasons why a sheep might be lame, for example, 20% um, of the reason is due to their genetic makeup. So that's essentially what, uh, what, what that means. And, and likewise, mastitis wasn't quite as high as that, but most certainly there is a genetic basis to the susceptibility to mastitis. And on that latter uh, um, uh, disease of so mastitis, we, we linked a new kind of toolkit, if you like. It isn't new, I should say, but it's new to the meat sheep industry. It's like a little kind of paddle uh, where you squirt milk into little paddles and then you add some kind of fancy pink washing up liquid type stuff. And it goes gloopy if the milk quality, as um, determined by the somatic cell counts in the milk, if, there's, if, it's, high, if it's high in the milk, then it goes gloopy if it's relatively clean and they're free from any um, uh, other uh, in, in infection, then um, the milk runs pretty clearly. And we score that on a five-point score again, and we link that to the lab's de de determination of how high that somatic cell count level was. And the relationship between the paddle, which is really cheap and dirty and easy and quick to do, and the complicated, well, not complicated, but the, the, um, the lab-based um, uh, somatic cell score uh, count um, uh, number, which is done routinely for dairy animals, the correlation was very, very high, over 0.9. So what that means is that we can use this much cheaper, quicker pen-side uh, indicator of subclinical mastitis in our use just to give us an indication whether those sheep are uh, indeed um, uh, got relatively high levels of, of, um, of somatic cell uh, counts in the milk. And when we looked at the relationship between that, so those animals that had very high scores compared to the very high levels of somatic cell count, so on our kind of quick and dirty, uh, cheap way of, um, of screening the mastitis, we looked at the difference between animals that didn't have uh, any somatic cell count levels, or certainly those that were, were, were uh, um, evident at all, compared to those um, which had the worst scores. And we saw that there was very definitely a, um, uh, a relationship between animals, um, the growth rate of their lambs in relation to how much somatic cell count there, there is in the milk. And the worst ones um, ha were, um, uh, were 3.8 kilos lighter um, from ewes with the worst um, scores for somatic cell count compared to those that were clean. And that was quite a, 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 you know, quite a useful thing to do because it means that we, we, we may have animals with subclinical mastitis, but if we can keep on top of that and, and manage it, then we most certainly will ensure that the growth rates of the lambs aren't compromised, compromised from having use that um, you wouldn't outwardly necessarily see these high levels of somatic cell counts. You, you, I mean, if some, some of them would de develop into a, a clinical, what we call a real acute mastitis that you can see, but by the time you see it on the outside with the swelling of the udder, et cetera, it's too late. It's, it's catching it before then, but, which is important. And actually, farmers are using that technique just to manage their sheep 
uh, as well as as, as including the, the information, the scores on um, in a breeding program. That sounds great, Joy. Thank you. Should farmers be testing milk quality in their flocks? Well, it's quite a useful management tool, and if you if you you know if you get if you if you have a problem with mastitis and you know you get it every year, um, and particularly if you're breeding your own replacements, then being able to identify the animals that are certainly clear of 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 of, of mastitis would be really beneficial as is identifying those that, that do have a problem. The, 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 the one caveat is that, you know, if you've got animals, the reason, the reason for building a breeding program is that we know that animals that have got really high milk yields are likely to also have high levels of somatic cell count in the milk. So, um, and, and we know from other species, it's likely that, that they're going to be correlated. So when you've got really highly selected animals for growing very, very fast, that is when you might see a problem in the adult you, you as a as a female. So if you if you build that into a breeding program, you can ensure that that doesn't deteriorate at a genetic level. Um, because what happened what happened in the dairy cattle industry is that when before they included somatic cell count as a, as a, within the breeding goal, that did deteriorate. But as soon as you include it in the breeding program, you can halt that deterioration. And that's, I suppose, one of the key messages of making sure that any breeding program is is as broad, uh, you know, in, includes some of the, the traits that, um, you know, could be at risk in terms of um, uh, having a uh, an antagonistic relationship with something that you really want to improve, like like yields. The fact that it, it affects the growth rate of the lambs is also important because that means, you know, you're going to get lambs that are slower to get to the to, to the slaughter, for example. Um, and that might not be due to their own genes. It might be due to um, the fact that, the, 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 you know, that their maternal environment or their, their dam's milk yield wasn't good enough for them to be able to express their strong genes for growth, for example. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. How are you studying foot rot in sheep? And on the foot rot, um, again, that, that, that uh, foot rot screening program, um, if, if, you're, if you're going to the trouble of, uh, of of taking the milk sample screening the animals once a year for their hoof score which basically classifies the foot rot according to whether they have um, no signs of uh, classical foot rot versus um, pretty pretty uh, strong underrun foot rot so foot rot kind of is a, is a uh, anaerobe and it, it pro- progresses from the interdigital space to the outer uh, uh, abaxial wall of the hoof and once it begins to come under on, um, it's uh, it's it's a it's uh, pr- pretty difficult to um, to control without using antibiotics, for example. And um, by screening animals for these for, for these diseases, we're able to identify uh, daughters of sires or sires that are um, that have a much better um, health record, a much lower. Um, genomic breeding value compared to those with with high with daughters who have high incidence of disease. Now this is screened over a number of different flocks that share sires across the different flocks. So it's not just a confounded within flocks. And this is the way that uh, uh, breeding programs are um, introduced. How is using a genetic program with genomic information beneficial? The, the, you'll get a similar accuracy at birth for any lamb, pretty much, um, compared to if you have to wait for that lamb 
to grow up, become a, become a, a reproductive uh, sire, sire its own females, and for them to then express it. Um, and you can certainly been proven in the dairy cattle industry that the accuracy that you'd get is so much increased um, from using genomic information that you you would you basically reduce that time lag that is 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 conventionally used in order to get higher accuracies for um, for um, sires and the, and, and the animals being selected for breeding. There is currently work looking at parasite resistance. Could you tell us more about it? So um, um, a PhD student of, of mine called Antonio Pacheco is towards the end of his PhD. And what he's been doing is um, using um, the data and collecting um, new data from our uh, uh, SIUC flock at, based at Castle Law um, in the Pentlands. And we use the information and the pedigree information that we've been collecting over a number of years and looked at the genetic basis to uh, not just nematodes, uh, but also different spe- worm species as well. So he looked at nematodirus, um, strong isles um, like T- Telodorsagia circumcincta, and also coccidiosis. And he looked at the genetic basis to all of these. So I think there's about five or six different uh, individual worm species and um, found that there was, again, a genetic basis to these and that they're correlated pretty much uh, correlated. So if you um, want to um, reduce nematodirus, um, you, if, if, you, if you had a, a fecal egg count for um, strong isles for T. circumcincta, they, those two are correlated. So you wouldn't need to have um, such a detailed um, fecal egg count. Um, you'd, you'd be able to select based on one. What he also looked at was and immunological parameters linked to disease. So that was a new thing. And what I mean by that is looking to see if any of the um, immunological um, indicators of disease could be screened for early in an animal, relatively early in an animal's life, um, to be able to predict their likelihood of being resistant or susceptible later in life. And he did this um, using the, that population and um, um, has published the f- first paper which looks at the genetic basis um, to these diseases and the links between them. And the um, immunological information has highlighted um, some of genomic regions which might be of interest specifically for um, um, immunoglobulin I can never say immunoglobulin A. Um, uh, IGA, as it's known, and I, um, when we looked at um, the where on the genome the animals might be expressing a resistance or a susceptibility, we, we got a very strong indication of where that might be. Now, this 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 uh, identifying individual genomic regions on the um, on the genome um, me, it is good because we can then include that in any breeding program. So we can put a kind of extra weighting, if you like, if an animal has that particular um, um, copy of the um, of the favorable, uh, what we call, they're called SNPs actually, but um, mutation, if you like, um, of the, of, the um, of, of that particular trait and build that information into, into structured breeding programs. Um, he's also um, doing, uh, yeah, so he's been doing a lot of that work, and we, we hope to hope to be able to have something 
a lot more um, detailed when when everything's been finished. But it's very promising, and I I'm very optimistic that we would be able to include um, some aspects of parasite resistance into future breeding programs for sheep in the UK. That sounds very interesting. Greenhouse gas emissions are increasingly important. Are you currently working on reducing sheep emissions? The, the current work that I'm doing um, is uh, a bit more topical, if you like, in that it's looking at um, the fact that you know agriculture in Scotland is the is the third largest source of greenhouse gas emissions that accounts for 18% of the total uh, emissions and that worldwide we know that about 1.1 billion sheep are emitting 138 million tonnes of carbon equivalents. So the, the, the issue is uh, breeding animals to um, have low methane emissions. And we're doing this in collaboration with a number of partners across the EU. Um, and where, where the aim really is to develop um, breeding and feeding approaches to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions um, and to try and find um, applied solutions to reduce methane by combining some new precision animal monitoring tools like uh, individual animal feed intake and genomic technologies that are linked to the microbial uh, uh, ruminant population um, and be able to, to quantify how we can reduce um, um, greenhouse gas emissions to develop kind of mitigation strategies for, for you know, five to 10 years hence. Um, um, and we think that the impact potentially would be that we could breed animals to reduce their methane emissions of between about one and 3% um, per annum or um, between 1.4 to 4 million tonnes reduction in carbon equivalents per annum, which is cumulative. So, you know, if you if you select one year, then obviously that 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 stays with the animal, and the following year, um, you get an, an additional um, an additional uh, amount of, of of response. So yeah, we're looking at different different ways in that project. Looking at outdoor fed animals, indoor fed animals. We're looking at um, uh, using direct measurements of um, methane using some new technology um, where it, it monitors individual sheep. Um, uh, in a in a special uh, called portable accumulation chambers. So uh, other other we don't have them in this country yet, um, but um, we're hoping to. We, we put in a bid to try and get some, and um, we're hoping that we'll be able to join in with with our partners in um, in New Zealand uh, and Ireland and Norway that currently have this technology to be able to make um, a, 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 a link between feed intake and greenhouse gas emissions because we know that animals eat more emit more we also know that animals that eat more um well that, that are on poor quality roughages tend to have bigger bigger rumens and so if they've got bigger rumens then they emit more uh, methane so there's there's a bit of a balance you know if you're wanting if you're wanting sheep to be using poor quality areas which are unsuitable for other farming enterprises then we have to there's probably a trade-off in terms of greenhouse gas emissions as to, you know, what what we have to do to, to offset that known uh, increase that we might see in their individual ability to emit emit methane. Thank you, Joe. Next, we will speak to Cathy Dwyer. Hello, Cathy. Shall we start with offspring survival? What factors are important for maximising rates of survival, particularly with increasing numbers of triplets? 
Yeah, so I think it's useful to think about why lambs die and when they die, and that can help us think about how we might improve things. So we know that um, the highest rates of mortality happen on the day that the lamb is born and within the first week of life. Um, so those are so really focusing on that period of time helps us improve survival. And we know that triplets in particular are more vulnerable, and particularly to things that happen on the day that they're born. So the reasons that um, that lambs die from is really getting them through the birth process successfully. So difficult deliveries uh, affect the mother; she becomes exhausted and doesn't show um, sort of maternal behaviour, and can affect the lamb. Then the the really important part is that relationship between the ewe and her lamb in the first few hours after birth, when the the mother forms a relationship with her lamb. So the behavior of both the mother and the offspring are really important there to make sure the lamb gets up and suckles really quickly. And that if that relationship happens well, then the lamb has a much, much better uh, chance of survival. And that is true whether the lamb is born as a single or as a triplet. But it's just that for triplets, those things become much more difficult. The ewe has to give birth three times. She has to form three relationships with three different lambs. And each of those lambs tend to be a little bit smaller they're usually slower to get to their feet. They find it harder to maintain body temperature. And all those things have an impact on their survival. So triplets have the same causes of mortality. The same things are important, but they're just a little bit more important if you're a triplet compared to a big single lamb, which once it's out of the use successfully can often cope quite well with quite a long period of time of cold uh, while it tries to find the other and suckles, whereas triplets have very limited reserves because they're quite smaller and lighter. That's great. Thank you. So how do farmers' behaviours impact on these natural behaviours? So usually what we're looking for is the ewe to, I mean, ideally we want the ewe to rear the lamb for us rather than us having to spend any time on it. So I think it's thinking about where maternal behaviour comes from um, and even that sort of starts from before the ewe gives birth. Uh, so um, the ewe kind of reaches a point where she's starting to think about giving birth about two days before she actually does give birth. And we can see physiological changes in the mother that lead to that. Uh, if she's given the opportunity, a lot of ewes will choose a place to give birth and they try to cho- they choose places that it may be away from other ewes, maybe a bit more secluded, where they feel confident and comfortable to give birth. Um, But I guess the thing that we probably think of most as maternal behavior is that licking behavior that we see in our mothers once they've given birth and those low pitch rumbles and those those bleats that the ewe makes. And those behaviors are really crucial for the ewe to form a bond, to recognize her lamb. That's what she's doing in that period of time. Um, So everything that we want to do is to try and make sure that that happens as it should do, because if the ewe doesn't form a bond, doesn't learn to recognize her lamb, and the the sort of time window that she's got to do that in can be quite short. So it may only be half an hour or so after birth that she needs to lick the lamb to learn the lamb's smell. And if she doesn't do that, or anything that we do that interferes with that process means that the ewe is less likely to learn to recognize their lamb, and then we get lamb rejection. Um, because ewes are designed really to take care of their own lambs and to not take care of anybody else's lamb. So she needs that period of licking and grooming to learn which lamb is hers and she needs to look after, and then she excludes all other lambs. So she she will, and you know, people will be very familiar with ewes butting away other lambs because they know that they're not their own. So what we need to do is make sure that period of time when the ewe needs to lick and groom the lamb She's given every opportunity to do that because that's going to be successful from, in terms of her learning to bond to the lamb. 
So we've done a lot of work on looking at where that behavior comes from, what affects it, how it's controlled. And we know that um, it's under uh, sort of um, it's hormonal control that leads to expression of maternal behavior. But then the birth process itself helps the you start to show that maternal behavior. So we know that um, before a you gives birth or a non-pregnant ewe is not interested in the fluids, the birth fluids that come out when the ewe's going through labor. But as she goes through labor or the very late stages of pregnancy, she suddenly gets really interested in the smell and the taste of those fluids. And so when she starts laboring, um, they're spilt onto the ground and you'll see the ewe get up and lick the ground. Um, and that is her, that attraction to that fluids is then transferred to the lamb when it's born. So it's really important that she gets that opportunity to make that transfer. So at the point where the lamb is born, she's interested in the smell of the fluids uh, and she needs to learn that the lamb also smells like these things and that's why she starts to lick it. So our more experienced ewes do this really quickly and you probably don't even notice that transfer, whereas the um, inexperienced ewes might spend a lot of time licking the ground where they gave birth and perhaps not licking the lamb quite so quickly because they have to learn that transition. So we really need to give the ewe time to do that. If we move her off the birth site, so she's chosen a place she wants to lamb, she's spilt the fluids there, and then we move her away from it. Often, again, some of the so if we've, if we've, something has happened and she's moved away, she might have dropped the lamb somewhere and she might go back to the birth site because that's where she's attracted. She hasn't transferred the attraction to that lamb. And often if we disturb that process, we lose that transfer and that licking. And that's really crucial for maternal behavior to occur, for the you to learn who to, um, who to focus on. So I think that period of time around the very early birth and um, the you starting to show that licking and grooming is really the point that as far as possible, we need to leave the you alone um, so she can get on with that behavior. Um, more experienced ewes, ewes that have lambed a few times are usually a bit more flexible. They can cope with a few more disruptions. But ideally, if we let them have that period of time together with their offspring at the place they've chosen to give birth, unless it's really dangerous place, then that helps that process. That first half an hour after birth is the time that as far as possible, we need to leave the ewe alone to form that, that bond. So I think it's important that farmers give um, ewes the time and space to show these sorts of behaviors. So anything that we're doing, if we're disrupting the animals, uh, we're moving them around, we're moving animals off the birth site, we are interfering with, you know, we, we have dogs in the barn or anything we're doing that's going to stop that licking and grooming behavior or make the ewe spend less time focused on her lamb, makes it less likely that she'll be able to form that bond. So in terms of things that we should be looking out for, I think um, looking at where the ewe has chosen to lamb and allowing her to give birth there and make that initial process. So particularly for our very young ewes, if we're very quick to move them off the birth site and put them in an individual pen, we start to disrupt that process um, for the very young ewes. So either penning them where they've lambed or moving them at a much earlier stage, um, really before labor has really begun, um, we, we're able to get to, to see those those behaviors better. But ideally, we should be trying not to disturb the ewes during that early licking and grooming period of time, because that's when maternal behavior is formed. Very interesting. Thank you. Keeping triplets on ewes is an option to reduce artificially rearing. How can this be done successfully? So one of the, the issues with if you want to increase productivity is to increase the number of triplet lambs that we might have. 
but we know that triplet lambs have a greater um, chance of, of not surviving. They tend to have more difficult births. So even though the lambs themselves are very small, we see a much higher percentage of ewes with lambs coming backwards or upside down or two lambs at the same time. So having those very small lambs um, can increase the risk of, of having a difficult delivery. Um, and then we have the ewe obviously only has two teats and we have three lambs. So uh, some of the, the work that we've been doing is looking at can we improve the ability of the ewe to rear three lambs herself. Otherwise, the option is either to, to, to uh, twin a lamb onto a singleton ewe or artificially rear them. So because of that process that we've already talked about, the ewe forming that bond and that smell relationship, that smell recognition, uh, fostering, cross-fostering is really challenging in ewes because we have to persuade the ewe that this lamb is her lamb um, and she's got a very good sense of smell that tells her it's not. Um, and she only wants to rear lambs that smell like her lamb. So if she's lost a lamb, then skinning the lamb and putting that on the ewe works really well because it, the ewe uses that smell recognition, so it thinks it's still its own lamb. Otherwise, the wet fostering process when we get a lamb, when the ewe is lambing herself and we can put the lamb that we want her to foster um, in at the same time and cover it in the amniotic fluids, and then she shows this natural behavior of licking and grooming and learns that, to recognize that lamb. So those processes really rely on a lot of very sensitive shepherding to get the lambs in the right place at the right time um, so that we can use that smell memory because a lot of other forms of fostering aren't very successful can be quite stressful, quite labor intensive, and often don't work anyway. So we, we think the, the ewe has accepted the lamb, she goes out with a pair, and then we, we lose one in the field. So what some of the work that we've been doing is looking at, can we improve the ability of the ewe to rear triplets herself? Uh, so the ewes are pretty good at forming a relationship with three lambs. They, are, um, they, they show some increase in grooming with each lamb that's born and they form a separate memory for each of their three lambs. So they don't just learn the memory of one lamb and then that's generalized to all the others. They need to form a separate memory. But ewes are quite good at that. They can count to three, so they know they have three offspring. Uh, their ability to recognize the last lamb in the litter and the first lamb is exactly the same. Um, but So more of the issue is really around the triplet lambs themselves. So they are slower to get up, slower to suckle. They have reduced ability to maintain body temperature, so they're more susceptible to hypothermia. They also take longer to learn to recognize the ewe themselves, so they might wander off and follow a different ewe rather than following their mother. Um, so some of those issues can be quite a challenge for the ewe to rear three lambs. She's also only got two teats, and usually the ewe will only let her lambs suckle. At, so when they're very young, they can suckle whenever they like. But after, um, after a few weeks, the ewe will only let the lambs suckle when they come together. So that was fine for twins. They both come at the same time. They both have a side each. When you've got three, that means one lamb is always missing some of those sucking opportunities. Um, and often it's the smallest lamb or the weakest lamb. Um, so although the ewe forms a bond and she would be willing to let them all three suckle, there is competition between the other triplets. Um, so really we need a ewe that's well-fed, producing a lot of milk, so that those lambs can cope with that missing sucking opportunity and she's able to produce enough milk to rear those three lambs. Some of the work that we've been doing has been looking at um, very specific types of, of, of nutrition in pregnancy, feeding specific amino acids and whether that is because it helps develop the placenta and that can improve the survivability of the lambs. 
uh, when they're born. So that work is going on at the moment. Um, but it is it is more difficult. So those ewes rearing triplet lambs, they can certainly do that, and the ewes are perfectly capable of doing that. They will need really uh, good nutrition to make sure they produce enough milk. And I think the lambs need more protection, at least in the early stages, because they are more vulnerable to hypothermia. They're probably going to grow uh, slower because they are not necessarily having the same number of sucking opportunities uh, that a twin bearing you would have. And some of the work that we are uh, planning to do in the future is to look at those relationships and how the sucking frequency of triplet lambs and how well they grow when reared by the mother. With increasing lambing percentages, many farms are likely to have pet lambs. What is the impact on the artificially reared lambs? So obviously one of the downsides of having um, more triplet lambs is particularly if you're, you have a lot of twins, a lot of triplets and not many singles, there's only limited opportunities to do um, any cross-fostering. Um, and again, because, because triplet lambs do struggle a little bit more, so they find it more difficult, uh, it may be that one of the options is to take one of the lambs away and rear that artificially. Um, so this, again, is, is something that we've been looking at, um, and there are increasing ways of um, improved ways to, to feed and rear lambs as pet lambs. Uh, one of the difficulties when we take a lamb away is the lamb loses the, the close interaction it has with its mother. So we need to take over some of those activities, like keeping the lamb warm, keeping it protected uh, from, from predation, but also from from drafts and things, because often the lambs will lie up against their mothers. So we need to provide that sort of uh, support. Um, the lamb also gets to suckle from the mother very frequently. So lots and lots of small meals is the normal sort of sucking pattern for a young lamb. So if we are bottle rearing a lamb and we're only feeding them three or four times a day, that's very different to what, what the lamb's gut is designed to do and what the lamb's behavior is designed to do, which is to suckle small meals on a very regular basis. So um, if we are going to have large numbers of pet lambs, we really need to be looking at some of these systems that allow the lamb to suckle from a teat, which is quite a natural behavior, a natural way of suckling, and allows the lamb almost constant access to milk because that's when the lambs, lambs have these sucking patterns. Um, so that can be quite efficient in terms of rearing lambs. The lambs, the first lambs need to be taught how to suckle from these teats, but often they can learn from each other. So it doesn't mean that every lamb has to be taught to suckle from a teat. One of the disadvantages of these sorts of um, processes is the, the milk that we use is not an exact replica of what the ewe produces. So often we have issues with, and we have some work going on at the moment. So although the lambs are surviving and they're growing and they seem to be doing fine, they are not growing as fast as the lambs that are being reared by their mothers. They have, um, they seem to have more um, digestive difficulties. So we are seeing that the the nutrition, the, so the sort of conventional ewe milk replacer is not as good as what the ewe produces and the ewe's milk will change through lactation. So the lamb gets different um, composition of milk at different stages, whereas obviously the milk replacer is the same for the lamb throughout that, that period of time. So there are uh, issues even when we try to provide um, ad libitum access to milk. There's obviously competition between the lambs for the teats. But in fact, even when the, the lamb is reared by its mother, it doesn't get ad libitum access. The ewe decides when the lamb gets to, to feed. The lamb doesn't get to feed whenever it wants. So those things are potentially not so different um, to a natural situation. I think the milk composition perhaps is an issue, and that might be something to look at in the future, whether there's opportunities to look more closely at what... what um, what the composition of milk replacer is and ewe milk at different stages in development. 
Some of the work that we're doing at the moment is also looking at what are some of the other impacts on artificially reared lambs of not being with their mothers. So we know from the dairy industry, for example, that there are other impacts uh, to growth and health issues, but there's also potentially other issues in terms of the animal's behavior, about how well it might integrate into the, the milking herd in the case of the dairy calves. Um, they find it more difficult. They find it more difficult to cope with social behaviors. They find it more difficult to, um, to, to learn about the environment. And actually, the animals do a lot of learning about the environment, particularly in the dairy industry, but also in other environments as well. And they also find it harder to change their behavior. So they're less flexible is what we would tend to call it. Um, and that can have an impact on how easy they are to manage. So if we're used to animals coming through a handling system in one particular way, and then we change it, the animal has to learn now it comes through this in a, diff a different way. And for some animals, that's almost impossible as a task because of the way that they've been reared. So there are uh, sort of issues with, um, with artificial rearing. Some farmers lamb ewe lambs whilst others leave them another year. What are the findings on lambing ewes for the first time? One of the other ways that we might think about increasing on-farm productivity is to lamb our ewes at a younger age, so lambing lamb, ewe lambs rather than the older ewes. Um, and this is something that's starting to become more and more popular. Uh, it is based on the ability of these lambs to grow well in the first year. Um, so normally we would want them to be at least 60% of their mature body weight before we would think about um, using them as 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 reproductive animals in their first year. Um, one of the issues for any ewe lambing at any age is when ewes lamb for the first time, they are less able to cope with the environment. I've talked already a bit about maternal behavior and how it's more difficult for inexperienced ewes. And they need all the cues. They need the best chance to show that onset of maternal behavior. They need the access to the lamb and to the smell of the lamb to transfer um, that attraction to amniotic fluids. And that occurs, they, they need the experience of lambing to learn and to mature those processes. It doesn't matter what age they are, it's the lambing for the first time that's the issue. So we can lamb an older you or a younger you, they'll still show those sorts of disturbed behaviors. So they do need to lamb to learn how to, to be a mother. Um, so one option then is obviously if we've lambed them as you lambs, then we get a better mother into later years for a longer period of time, at least that might be one of the goals. Um, one of the ways that, that sort of nature deals with animals giving birth for the first time is usually to have a small litter. So a lot of ewes lambing for the first time, particularly younger ewes, will have a singleton because it's generally an easier job for the mother to rear one. And that's their practice run, if you like, their inexperienced run out of the way, and then they can rear larger um, litter sizes. And some of the work that we've done has shown that um, although the, the ewe lambs can rear a single as well as a, an older ewe, they really struggle when litter sizes get bigger. So if we have a very prolific uh, flock of sheep, it may be that those ewe lambs will find that rearing two or three lambs really difficult and we have much higher mortality in the lambs. And if, if the ewe loses all her lambs, then she doesn't have that experience of learning um, to be a mother the first time around. What are the difficulties associated with lambing ewe lambs? Um, so there are some issues with lambing ewe lambs. They need more uh, all inexperienced ewes need more sort of care and attention, more um, support around lambing time to make sure things go properly. But for ewe lambs, that tends to be a little bit more acute just because they're younger and they're smaller. Um, and particularly if they're not having a singleton lamb, then they're really going to struggle. 
one of the other issues with with ewe lambs is um, making sure they have enough nutrition to support their own growth and the growth of their fetus. Um, and there's been some research that's shown that if we overfeed those sort of teenage pregnancies, if you like, those younger ewes, then that can um, have a sort of paradoxical effect in that the ewe puts all that energy into growing herself and the lambs are actually smaller than they would be if um, if we had had a more balanced nutrition. So again, we need to be really careful about, we can't undernourish them because that will be detrimental, but if we overnourish them, we also get the same uh, response in fetal growth. So we need to manage those animals much, much more carefully and sensitively than we might um, sort of older ewes that have already achieved the majority of their mature body size uh, at the point of, of lambing. Is there a cost of lambing too young? So one of the issues is sort of weighing up, is there going to be a benefit of lambing the ewe younger uh, versus, um, and one of the, the consequences of that or one of the potential costs is, is an impact on longevity. Now, if we're only planning to have three or four litters from a, or three or four lambings from a ewe, we may not reach that point where we are having an impact on later development. Um, but there is a... Um, some concerns that we might be reducing the productivity of the ewe in the longer term by lambing them younger because they need this more sensitive shepherding. We might need to be much more careful about how we manage our nutrition. There can be increased labor costs in lambing those ewe lambs uh, successfully. Um, so I think it's probably for each farm to make the decision about is this going to be cost effective or not. Um, and as I said, we don't yet know enough about the longer term consequences of that in terms of whether we see a drop off in, um, in reproductive ability in these animals at an earlier age because they've been lambed earlier. Research is also being carried out into painful procedures and different methods of castration. Why is reducing the pain caused by painful procedures important? So some of the other work that we've been doing has been focusing not so much on the, the ewe lamb relationship, or that, that is where the bulk of our work has been, but also looking at what happens to lambs in early life, particularly procedures that cause pain. Uh, so those would be tail docking and castration typically. Uh, there's increased consumer concern about these sorts of procedures, about um, causing pain to animals and what might be the benefits or not of, of carrying out these sorts of procedures. Um, there's also uh, potential issues why we might want to reduce the impact of these procedures or maybe reduce the number of these procedures. Because when we, particularly if we're doing, we're putting a rubber ring on either the tail or, the, or using the rubber ring for castration, we are causing um, a lesion at the point where the, the rubber ring tightens and we need the skin to, um, we have dead tissue from the, the tail end or the, or the, the scrotum. Um, and then we have living tissue on the other side and there is a lesion or a, a scab or a, um, you know, there, there's, there's, um, there's something happening before the, before the, the, the dead tissue is lost. And that, so as soon as we have a lesion, we open up the opportunity for infection uh, we know that there is, uh, so we need to keep these animals really in clean pastures. If it's very wet when we're, we're ringing lambs, then um, we, we risk tracking infection in. And we know that there is an increase in mortality in some flocks in the castrated lambs or following castration. It also, because it, it causes pain to the lamb, it has an impact on growth rates immediately after we put the ring on. So the ring if we're using a rubber ring, it we, obviously it's stretched to go on and then it gradually contracts 
over a period of time back to its other side. So it's a bit like having a blood pressure cuff that initially it doesn't hurt, but then if you left it on too long, you would feel that slow constriction. And that's what happens when, when these rings are put on. Um, so the amount of pain the lamb experiences increases as the, the, the ring contracts back to its normal size, which takes about 10, 15 minutes after we've put the ring on. So often we might see we put the ring on, we don't see an immediate response from the lamb. We might often just see that it runs off and suckles from its mother. But it's 10, 15 minutes later when the ring has contracted, that's when the most acute pain occurs. And that lasts for about two hours after we've put the ring on, um, because that's how long it takes really for the nerves that are uh, transmitting information um, from the tissues uh, beyond the ring back up. Um, and then the, those, those nerves are also killed by the crush eventually or by the lack of blood supply. But that can take up to two hours. So for some lambs, particularly the lambs that have been castrated, which is, is more painful than, than tail docking, it can be that those lambs are not getting up and suckling. They're not following their mothers. They may be more likely to get lost. Um, and we, we can see that we, uh, an impact on their growth rate um, in that first week after the rubber ring has gone on, um, which is partly because they're, they're less keen to, to suckle from their mothers. Um, so we do see reductions in growth rate and we see potential for increased mortality in lambs that have, have had these painful procedures. What options and different methods of castration do farmers have? So some of the work that we've done is to think about um, what other options are there for farmers? What, what other things could be done? And certainly one of the, the obvious uh, options, particularly for lowland farmers, you've got fast growing genetics now. Um, so maybe 30, 40 years ago when people started using rings, lambs were growing more slowly. But now we have certainly have breeds where the lambs will grow and, and crosses where the lambs will grow and reach market weight by three months of age. So before puberty um, and those animals, we would get the benefits of that additional growth uh, from not putting the rubber ring on. Uh, some of the work that we've done also suggests there's improved carcass quality in those lambs over lambs that have been castrated. So I think if it's an option for a farm management to not castrate, then that would be that there are growth benefits as well as the sort of welfare benefits of not causing pain. If it's if those aren't possible, it isn't possible. I think probably being aware that putting a rubber ring on is is painful and using local anaesthetic can be a way to to reduce that or minimize that pain particularly the pain associated with the, the immediate contraction of the ring. Now, I know that that's, that's a difficult thing to do. It's very hard to do in large numbers of animals when you're out in the field. And there have been some developments um, to look at ways of doing that as a single device. Um, so the, the device gives local anesthetic and puts the rubber ring on all in one go. Uh, so that's been developed in Australia and New Zealand. It's currently available there. It hasn't yet been licensed for use in the UK. But there, are, there is work going on at the moment to look at uh, whether that can be achieved um, and is it going to be possible to, to suggest that that should be a way forward. And I think then that gives, it, it doesn't make it any more difficult to castrate the lambs, but you give, by giving local anaesthetic at the same time, there's evidence that it's much less pain. And as pain is associated with impacts on growth rate, then we would expect that to be improved as well. Some of the other opportunities are to think about things like short scrotum castration. So this, again, is something that's used quite widely in New Zealand. Um, about a third of farmers would use short scrotum castration rather than full castration. And for this, we would push the testicles back into the abdomen and then take off the scrotum. 
uh, so the, the the testicles are retained in the abdomen and the heat of the the body um, causes infertility so that the um, the tissue doesn't develop in the same way uh, the lambs don't develop um, sperm and they don't show sort of behaviors associated with being an entire male at least not to such a such a degree because we're taking off a smaller amount of tissue, the, the size of the lesions is less, the ability of the ring to contract is quicker. Um, so these, these, um, this sort of approach doesn't eliminate pain in the way that local anesthetic can do, but it does reduce some aspects of the pain um, of the procedure and makes the lesions smaller. So again, less likely to get infections. Some of the other methods that have been used are sort of um, the, the bedizzo, which is a sort of crush uh, response rather than um, putting a ring on, or you can put the ring on and crush at the same time. The advantage of the, the crush injury is that it kills the nerve very quickly as well. So with the rubber ring, we're waiting for the nerve to die by the ring contracting, um, whereas with the crush, we're killing the nerve by the crush. So the lamb tends to feel a, a very uh, acute pain as that happens, but once the nerve is dead, it no longer transmits information um, to the lamb's brain, which is perceived as pain. So the lambs are um, tend to recover much more quickly from these sorts of injuries. Um, we also see that the lesions associated with the rings and the healing time is a bit quicker as well. So again, we have less times that the, um, the animal might have uh, a risk of, of tracking infection. And, and there, there is more work at the moment. A lot of those instruments are quite cumbersome to do. It's not an easy process. So there is work going on at the moment as well to see whether that can be made simpler, a single action again, like, um, like, like with some of the developments with local anesthetic. So again, that work is going on at the moment or will be going on very shortly. And um, so that the idea is to try and find ways of castrating lambs that cause less pain, have less of an impact on growth rate, hopefully have less smaller lesions or more efficient uh, healing lesions so we have less opportunities for lambs to develop infections. Um, and these are also responding to consumer demands and consumer um, confidence in the, the, the lamb that they might be buying. Um, so I think if a, um, this is becoming more of an issue for consumers to think about the lives of the animals that they're then going to buy and eat. And often sheep are perceived to be, um, to be really good welfare because they're out on the hills. Um, but the, the pain associated with some of these management procedures, which are related to keeping them on the hills or, or in outdoor environments, um, is really one area where it's, uh, it, it's an issue that the industry could be tackling that might make it more uh, acceptable for consumers. That's been excellent. Thank you, Cathy. Thank you to Joe and Cathy for taking part in today and sharing their knowledge. Thank you to all the researchers who are taking their time to participate in this eight-part series, providing an interesting insight into their research and findings. Thank you for taking the time to listen. We hope you have enjoyed it. You can find out about all the other podcasts in the series on the Farm Advisory Service website or from your usual podcast provider, along with many other podcasts available on a whole range of topics. You can find out more about the Farm Advisory Service and the work we are doing by visiting our website on www.fas.scot or if you need advice, please call the helpline on 0300 32 30 161.